When we started our series in Revelation, we began by stating the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing, of remembering why Revelation is in the Scriptures and what God is communicating to His church through it. And the main point of all of Revelation, the, the, the purpose that God gives us vision to His uh, Apostle John to write to the churches that we might have it too, is so that the church, that followers of Jesus Christ in every age until Christ returns might be encouraged, might be inspired, might be spurred on to faithful obedience and perseverance in faith until the day Jesus comes. Revelation is ultimately a word of encouragement to the church, a word of inspiration to believers. And today we come to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Danelle read chapter 4. We'll, we'll look at chapter 5 in a minute. Revelation 4 and 5 as maybe one of the central images, the central passages in all of Revelation that helps us to understand the rest of it. This is a critical juncture in this book, and, and, and already it's, it's just here in the, the fourth and fifth chapter, in the, the first third, really within the first third of this book. But if we miss the point of Revelation 4 and 5, friends, we miss the point of the rest of Revelation. That this book is an an inspiration, uh, an encouragement to press on in faithful endurance has everything to do specifically with who God is and how we respond to Him. God is, as we'll see in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the sovereign God of the universe. He is in the, the person of the Son, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. He is through the Holy Spirit of God, that which, that, that which goes out throughout all the universe and sees all the things that God is doing and all the ways that people are responding to His work. God is at the center of it all and around God who's at the center of it all is praise, is worship. And worship is what is meant to inspire us to persevere in faithfulness until Christ comes again. This central vision in Revelation is is here in chapters 4 and 5, a picture of the sovereign God and the victorious Lamb of God who is overcome by His death and resurrection, who sits on the throne with God the Father to receive the joyful worship of all the created world. This is right here at the center of Revelation. Here's the main idea that comes to us from Revelation 4 and 5. If you don't catch anything else this morning, catch this. That everything starts and ends with worship. Everything starts and ends with worship. And as we see this in Revelation 4 and 5, I want for us, I want for myself to place the worship of God not only at the center of our interpretation of Scripture, not only at the center of what we do on Sunday mornings as a church, but to place worship of God at the very center of everything that we do as followers of Jesus, at the center of everything that we are as followers of Jesus. Everything starts and ends with worship. It begins in chapter 4 this way, with, the, with John, the, the seer, the writer, the one who is writing down this revelation, communicating to us this thought that worthy is the sovereign God. That's what we have in chapter 4. That's the point of chapter 4, to point out to us the worthiness of God and all of His sovereignty. 
The first two verses of chapter 4 begin with this phrase, after this. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And John hears a voice, the same voice from Revelation chapter 1, saying, come up here and I'll show you what what must take place after this. Now that little phrase, after this, indicates the, the next phase of the vision. Now, some have interpreted this little phrase after this as a shift away from the church age, which was represented in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 with the letters to the churches. And now we're, we're moving on to a, 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 a John's uh, telling about a history, or, or uh, not a history, but uh, a future, future realities in which the church is actually absent from the world. That because the word church is not mentioned, that specific word church is not used anymore after chapter 4 that somehow the church is no longer in the world. I think that's too simplistic a reading of Revelation. In fact, as we work through the rest of the book, we'll see that, that the church, the people of God, the true Israel of God, followers of Jesus, are in the world through every phase of what is coming next. So after this is not necessarily a cue to a, a shift in the chronology of what's going on in Revelation. It's just a shift to what John sees next. He saw this glorious vision of the risen Son of Man, he, he heard the Son of Man, Jesus, speaking a word to the churches. He wrote those, and now the vision is shifting now to the heavenly throne room of God. So immediately then, on, on hearing this voice, come up here, I'll show you what takes place after this. I'll show you what's next in this vision that I'm giving to you. John is transported by the Holy Spirit. He says, I was in the Spirit to a throne room in heaven where he sees someone on the throne. Now, chapter or, verses 3 through 8 tells us exactly who it is that's on the throne. The description that John gives of the one seated on the throne, has he doesn't say specifically, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. He just says, I saw one on the throne, but the one who's on the throne has every appearance of being divine. Everything about the description of the one on the throne communicates beauty, majesty, splendor, and glory unmatched in all the universe. He has an appearance like jasper and carnelian, these precious stones, and there's a a rainbow like an emerald that surrounds the throne, which if you envision an emerald, a rainbow that looks like an emerald, you might be kind of confused like me because I'm going like emeralds are green, rainbows are lots of colors. What are you trying to say, John? John is saying it's beautiful. It's majestic. Remember, like John is trying to put into human words what he's seeing with his, his eyes. And, and in as much as a, a picture is worth a thousand words, so also John knows a thousand words wouldn't even communicate what it is that I'm seeing. So I'm going to do the best that I can for you, friends. The appearance of this one is glorious. It's beautiful, surrounded in majesty and glory, just emanating from the throne. There's so much parallelism between Revelation 4 and the visions of God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. I encourage you to go and read those later this week and see how John is is pulling on and using language that's been used uh, as he's seeing God on his throne. He's using language that other prophets have used as they saw God on his throne as well. So as to say, this isn't a different God. This isn't a different thing that that, that I'm seeing. This isn't a different vision. This is the same God who's, who's revealing himself Similarly, and that throne we see is surrounded by 24 elders. 
Now, these 24 elders are probably not human persons in heaven, but angelic representatives of God's people in the world, maybe quite similar to the angels of the seven churches we saw in Revelation 2 and 3. All throughout, Jesus is instructing John, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. The, 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 the idea that there are angelic representatives in heaven of God's people on earth is not a new thought to us. And so these elders around the throne uh, are probably angelic representatives of God's people in the world. They're number 24 is symbolic as well. It's a a doubling of the number 12, if you're good at math. And it's either to represent the whole number of God's people under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, although we know there were were more than 12 apostles because Judas left and Matthias replaced him, and then there was Paul, and James is also called an apostle later. So 12 is kind of a fudgeable number in the New Testament. But you get the idea, 24, the fullness of God's people, or... Their number 24 could have to do with kind of their sort of priestly function of of giving worship to God in heaven and the 24 orders of priests that David initiated or or set in place to serve in the temple in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 24. Which it represents doesn't really matter. The importance is the fullness of their number and that these are angelic representatives of the people of God in the world. From the throne, John says, come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You need to pay attention to that phrase specifically, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, because this nearly exact same phrase occurs three more times in the course of Revelation. Once at the end of the opening of the seven seals, once at the end of the blowing of the seven trumpets, and then a fourth time at the end of the, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. And this, uh, this idea of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, it's a terrifying kind of sound and image. If you've ever been stuck or caught in a really violent thunderstorm, uh, just to be surrounded with that kind of power and unpredictability of nature is a humbling thing. And so John finds himself in a humbled state before the Lord. This is a dynamic way of describing the powerful voice of God that shakes the cosmos when he speaks. There are around the throne seven torches, which John tells us are the sevenfold spirit of God. This does not mean that there are seven Holy Spirits or that the Holy Spirit is split up into seven, but seven is a number of divine fullness. So it's the, the, whole, the wholeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit surrounds the throne of God. And we should see the seven torches in tandem with, in chapter, uh, well, with the seven spirits of God from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And also, as we'll see in a moment in Revelation 5, these seven eyes that are on the seven horns of the Lamb who appears in the throne room in chapter chapter 5, verse 6. The point is this, the throne of God is surrounded by, encapsulated by the Holy Spirit whom both the Father and the Son, the Lamb, possess. The throne, John says, sits, as it were, on a sea of glass, a sea of crystal. The sea was almost always in ancient literature an image of chaos and danger, even of spiritual darkness. The ocean is a scary place. There are monsters in the deep. There are, I don't even like going in a deep lake and swimming out in a deep lake because if a fish touches my leg, I'm a freak out. 
If I don't know what's bumping up against me, in my mind, it's the worst possible thing. Keep me in a sterilized, sanitized swimming pool. The ocean, the sea, lakes even are are symbols, are representations of chaos and the unknown. They're dark, they're murky, you can't see through them. Whatever is in them is is obscured by the, the, the crashing of the waves. And yet, the Lord's throne sits on a sea, but not a torrid ocean, not a a heaving sea, but a sea that is like glass, clear as crystal. The Lord sits on his throne above a sea that is as calm as glass, indicating that he is the God who brings total peace and order to chaos and to the ultimate example of the chaotic in this world. He stills the oceans. Already in your minds, you're thinking about Jesus calming the seas when he's there in the boat with his disciples, aren't you? The image is the same. And there are, around the throne, four creatures. These creatures have a fantastic description. They surround the throne. They each have six wings, seeming to parallel the seraphim, those angelic beings of Isaiah chapter 6, who also have six wings. And they have appearances that that mirror either the created world, like the animal kingdom, the the one that looks like a lion representing the, the pinnacle of the animal kingdom, the one that has a face like an ox representing the pinnacle of the agricultural world, the one with a face like a man representing humanity, that part of creation, the one with a face like an eagle representing the birds of the air, these these angelic creatures either symbolize all of God's created works or they symbolize aspects of God's own character that lion representing the aspect of God's the character of uh, the aspect of God's character his royalty the the ox representing God's service his work that he is a god who who uh, creates and is involved in the maintenance and the upkeep and the ongoing service of his creation the creature that has a face like a human representing the spiritual aspect of God, that there is something more than just material to God. He, he transcends that. The eagle, the one with a face like an eagle representing God's, the supremacy of his majesty over all things. The eyes that cover their bodies are to symbolize the all-seeing nature of God, even as he sends his angelic beings to serve and to survey all the earth. But the sole function of these four creatures who stand around the throne is this. Their core function is worship. John says the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Can you imagine that just on repeat (laughs) all the time? for eternity, from these four majestic creatures. Their job is to unceasingly sing praise to the superlatively holy God who lives forever. Holy, holy, holy is is not just there because the author ran out of things to say. Like, holy is a good word. Three of them must be really good. No, it's a a way of saying, uh, almost like, like saying holy, holier, holiest, is the Lord God Almighty. It's, it's, a, it's a way of, of singing with increasing 
greatness, the holiness of God. And these creatures do it forever. And the worship of the creatures, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Their worship inspires more worship. Did you see that? Their worship inspires the worship of those 24 elders that are around the throne. The four creatures here are, in this heavenly throne room, the lead worshipers. Their unceasing praise of God leads the angelic elders to do the same as they humble themselves before God and praise Him for His worthiness. They cast their crowns at His feet so as to say, whatever authority you have given to us doesn't matter in your presence, doesn't matter anywhere. You, you are everywhere all the time. And so even whatever authority you've given to us belongs back in praise to you. The motivation of their Praise, the motivation of the praise of the elders. Here's specifically the sovereignty of God in creation. They sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for, because you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of worship in his throne room from these four creatures and these 24 angelic elders because he created the world for himself and for his glory. Everything that he has created is singing back in praise, is reflecting back his glory and splendor to him. And these angelic beings see it and know it and praise God for it. And yet in the middle of this intense heavenly worship scene, John looks and he sees something more. Look at Revelation 5 and follow along. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads or and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation chapter 4 tells us that the sovereign God is worthy. Revelation chapter 5, as this vision of the heavenly throne room continues, tells us so also worthy is the conquering lamb. The sovereign God who creates all things is worthy of worship. And the conquering lamb is also worthy of all the same worship. Here's John looks on in this, in this glorious vision, this heavenly throne room. He finds in God's hand, the one sitting on the throne, a scroll. There in his right hand, the hand of his power. And, and that scroll is written all over, front and back, but it's sealed. The image of a sealed scroll is that its contents are still concealed. They have not yet been revealed to those who need to know the information in it. The seven seals indicate perfect divine security of the words that are in the scroll. That is to say, remember seven is a number of divine fullness. This seal is this scroll is sealed by God and it is sealed completely. This scroll, which will be opened in Revelation 6 and 7, we'll look at that next week. The content of the scroll is the remainder of what will be described in in Revelation. Uh, John never says, will never say, and then they read from the scroll all this sort of, but we see what happens when the scroll is opened. So there, with sealed scroll in hand, the Lord waits for someone to take it, and there's a mighty angel in heaven who calls out, who is worthy to open this perfectly, divinely sealed scroll of God's word about everything that's going to take place from the ascension of Christ until his return? Who can open this? Who has the right? Who has earned the privilege of opening God's words? The answer, no one. Not a sound. Nobody moves. John looks around and and none of the four creatures, not a one of the 24 elders, not even this mighty angel himself, step forward to take the scroll out of the Lord's hand. John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Remember, the risen Son of Man said to John, Write therefore the things that you have seen, and those that are and those that are to take place after this. John has a commission in Revelation to write down all that he sees. And now in the heavenly throne room, he sees that there is revelation of God. There's a word of God to be revealed to his people, but it's all sealed up and no one can open it. And all of a sudden, John's commission is at jeopardy. How can I write down what I've seen if no one will even open up what I need to see? And he weeps loudly. He's broken over the fact that he cannot finish what he's been commissioned to do. In the middle of his weeping, there's good news. One of the 24 elders comes to John and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Good news, says the elder to John. The messianic fulfillment of the promise to Judah from Genesis 49 verse 9. The messianic fulfillment of the root of David, that prophecy from Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 10. The lion who conquers is worthy 
by his conquering to open the seals of the word you need to know, John. Good news. And so John turns to see this lion. And what does he find? A different image. He turns to see the lion. And the lion is not a lion. The lion is a lamb, a young sheep who is standing but is slaughtered, who is standing as though slain. Now, obviously, the Lamb is Christ. The Lamb is the eternal Son of God who added humanity to His divinity in the incarnation, taking on the human name Jesus, living a sinless life in the place of undeserving sinners and dying on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for those undeserving sinners who was raised again to life on the third day so that all who trust in Him, who depend on Him as Lord, might be made right with God. That Lamb is the one that is standing before us. We're prepared for this image But see what the the picture, what the description of Jesus, the Lamb of God, says about him. He's a sacrificial lamb. He's standing as though slain. He appears as one slaughtered. He doesn't appear with an image of victory. He's called the Lion of Judah, but he looks like a slaughtered sheep. He doesn't look like the Aslan of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia who gets bigger and bigger every time the children see him whose, whose power is unmatched in all of the created world. Jesus doesn't look like that. The, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah looks like a slaughtered sheep which reminds us of all this other sheep imagery, slaughtered sheep imagery related to the Messiah in all of Scripture. In Isaiah 53 When Isaiah prophesies about this suffering servant of God who will serve the people by dying for their sins, by taking on their iniquities, Isaiah says that he was a sheep who who went to the slaughter silently as as a sheep goes silently to his shearers. In Exodus 12, we see this picture of a Passover lamb that is slaughtered to save the lives of the people of Israel when the angel of death passes through Egypt. As John the Baptist says in John, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 129, he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter, writing in his first letter, 1 Peter 1.19, says that Jesus is the Lamb without spot or blemish whose blood covers over sin. He is the Lion who conquers and is able to open the scroll. But how does he conquer? He conquers by dying. He conquers by giving his life as a sacrifice. He conquers by being slaughtered. And the lamb who stands as though slaughtered has in himself divine power. John says, this lamb has seven horns. Now, I've never seen a lamb with one horn or two horns, much less seven. So we know that John is speaking symbolically here. But these seven horns, that number seven, again, a number of divine fullness. Horn is an, a horn is an image of power or authority. The lamb has all divine power and authority. And there are seven eyes on the horns that are the spirit of God. The Lamb is vitally connected to the Holy Spirit in the same way that the sovereign God on the throne is surrounded by those blazing torches which are the sevenfold Spirit of God. And then this Lamb that stands as though slaughtered who has all divine power takes the scroll. What a bold move. Could you, I mean, could you imagine being before God's throne and, and, and imagine for a moment you actually survive this encounter? And he's holding in his hand something. 
It could be anything. God could be holding a a little Debbie Swiss roll in his right hand. And I wouldn't dare to take it. That's terrifying. And here he's holding the, the perfectly sealed word of his decree of all that is going to take place between the ascension of Jesus and his final return and the consummation of all things. And everyone else in the heavenly throne room rose. I have no business getting close to that thing. And the lamb walks in, walks to the throne, stands next to the one seated on it, takes the scroll. Bold move. But not if he's divine. Not if he has authority to open the scroll. Not if he is one with the one who has decreed it and shares power to to send the Spirit of God out into the world with the one who's sitting on the throne. The Lamb can take the, the scroll because he is God. He takes the scroll from the right hand of the Lord, of the one seated on the throne, the Father, and before anything else can happen... Everybody always, uh, immediately is like, all right, now open the scroll. Let's see what's in it, right? This thing's been sealed up, right? It's like uh, kids on Christmas morning, uh, or not even like Christmas, like the weeks before Christmas, when, when the days before Christmas, when the presents start showing up under the tree, all wrapped up. Every kid wants to grab it, shake it, and see what's inside, try to rip open a corner and peek at it, and very nicely put it back, you know, so that mom or dad didn't know that they were peeking. But that's not what happens here. The the lamb takes the scroll, and before anybody else can say anything, before anything can even be read, before one seal is even broken, worship erupts in the throne room again. First, there's a song to the lamb. First, remember in chapter 4, the four creatures and the 24 elders were singing to the one seated on the throne. Now those same individuals, those four creatures, those 24 elders, now sing a song to the lamb praising his worthiness. The first song they sing, verse 9 and 10, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Why is the Lamb worthy to take the scroll? Why is he worthy of the praise of this heavenly chorus? Because he was slain to rescue God's people from among the many and diverse peoples of the world. This this phrase from every tribe, nation, uh, people, and tongue is going to be repeated in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. We'll see it next week. Christ is a slain and risen Savior, a slain and resurrected Lamb, a lion from the tribe of Judah, not just for a certain group of people, but for all people. He's not just the Messiah who comes to save Jews. He's the Messiah who comes to save people from every ethnicity, from every race, from every nationality, from every language group, from every people group in the world. And more than this, he is worthy of praise because his death has made his people a particular kind of people. It's given them a new citizenship. He has made them a kingdom to God. And it's given them a new task, a new calling in their life to be priests to God. Again, we saw this language in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It goes all the way back to Exodus 19 when God says to the people of Israel as he brings them out of Egypt, you will be for me a, a, holy, a royal nation, a holy, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. And that same language for God's covenant people in the Old Testament is now applied to God's covenant people under the new covenant that's been purchased in Christ's blood. 
the church of Jesus Christ throughout all the world, which is made up of, of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, all who call on Christ as Lord, composes true Israel in whom God is going to work the purposes of his grace in all the world. The diverse people of God from every tribe, nation, tongue, people group, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, compose God's true people in the world throughout all ages and across all ethnicities. And the Lamb is worthy because He rescued them by dying. And then there's another song. Another song that's sung from myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, or 10,000 times 10,000 angels there surrounding the throne and all of creation. Now, this second song in Revelation 5 is shorter than the, than the first, but it parallels the first one. We read in verse, thir- uh, excuse me, uh, uh, verse 12. Uh, All of these angels were singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And then after them, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything created joins in them saying essentially the same thing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures who live forever, serve forever as these heavenly throne room worship leaders, they fall down in humility and worship the Lamb as well. What we see in Revelation 5 is this ever-expanding notion, this, the expanding degrees of worship of the Lamb. The praise of the Lamb does not stay with the four creatures around the throne. It does not remain in the throne room with the 24 elders. It expands to the whole panoply of angels, angelic beings that God has created, and then goes even further to all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Does that phrase sound similar to you? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all of them praising the Lamb. Where is that familiar? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, where Paul says to the church, listen to this, this hymn, this song about the worthiness of Christ. He says, have this mind, this mind of self-sacrifice and service to others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. What do we see in Revelation 5? The Lamb, highly exalted, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Who's singing in Revelation 5? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said in Philippians 2, and John is reminding us in Revelation 5 that everything is headed toward worship. Everything is headed toward praise of the Lamb. Exaltation of the name of Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who stands as, the, as a lamb, though slaughtered. Revelation 4 and 5 is a critical, critical juncture in the course of this letter to the churches. It shows us that worship 
that, that, that everything starts and ends with worship. But what's the point? What, what, what do we do with this? Okay, it's here. Great. Well, first of all, I, I encourage you, look at the, look at the image that's, that's painted for us here in Revelation 4 and 5. Look at the arrangement of the heavenly throne room. At the center, you have the only sovereign God who created all things sitting on his throne as, as the one in power and in control of everything. And his throne is on a sea as though glass. He brings order and calmness and peace to chaos. And around him, or excuse me, next to him, is the Lamb who conquers by dying. And around those are these four living creatures who live forever to unceasingly say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And around them are these 24 elders, the, these angelic representatives of God's people in all the earth. And then around them you have these myriads and myriads of angels. And then even beyond them you have every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You have these concentric circles of worship emanating from and oriented to the very throne of God. Who's at the center of it all in Revelation 4 and 5? The Lord, the only holy triune God who redeems people by sending his son to die for their sins and be raised again. The one who's worthy of all worship because he created everything. The one who's worthy of all worship because he's the one who redeems what is broken. My friends, do not miss the glorious God at the center of all of this worship. And see, remember how John describes him. This should not be a, a, a mundane description. He's sitting on a throne. He has an appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. There's a rainbow around him that looks like an, an emerald. Everything about this is majestic and beautiful and awe-inspiring and attention-grabbing. And if, we're, if our attention is not grabbed by this message, we have, we're missing something. What's the point? This is the point. Because Revelation 4 and 5 is absolutely critical to how we understand and how we read the rest of Revelation with worship at the center, the beginning and the end of all things. Here's the point, friend. Worship must be the central theme of our lives. It must. Worship is the central theme of the heavenly throne room of God. How could it be any different for the throne of God that is our hearts? Worship must be the central theme of our lives. And yet some of us are sitting here and listening to this as though, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before. What else is new? Worship must be the central theme of our lives. I feel like I have to preach this sermon to myself even because week after week, month after month, year after year, for decades now, I've been coming to church on Sunday mornings and singing songs with other saints. And most of the time, friends, I'm relatively unmoved. Do you know whose fault that is? You know whose problem that is? Mine. Mine. Because when John sees the Lord seated on his throne in all of his splendor and all of his glory, when the divine reality, when the, the spiritual realities of all that is going on in our redemption through Jesus' death is there on display for John, he sees that angelic beings in heaven worship and they never stop doing it. You would think these, these beings that live in the presence of God for, for an infinite amount of time would eventually get tired of worship, but they don't. They just keep going. What's wrong with these beings? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with them. 
They're doing what they were created to do, and they're doing what they willfully and joyfully love to do. Why? Because they know that the one seated before them is worthy of their infinite worship. That there are no songs that they could sing to exhaust the worthiness of God. That there are no words that they could come up with that, that, that could even come close to expressing the worthiness of God. And yet, forever, they are going to give it their best effort to sing His praises. The big deal about worship being the central theme of our lives is this, that, that, that glorious, delightful, awe-inspired worship, friends, it's, it's everything. It's meant to be everything. It's the juice that, that keeps the passion of that throne room vision going. It's just worship all the time. This is a confronting, it should be a confronting image to us, I think either confronting or encouraging. Last week I was in a small group Bible study class with uh, Tom Fisher. They're studying the Gospel of John. And, um, and when I'm able to, I like to sit in there because it's good for me to learn stuff. And before, um, uh, before our class time started, we were just kind of talking a little bit, chit-chatting about Revelation. And, uh, and Tom um, uh, said a sentence that summarizes Revelation in a helpful way. And I think he borrowed it from someone else, but I don't remember who it was, Tom, so I'm going to give you credit. He said, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a word of comfort for the afflicted, and it's a word of affliction for the comfortable. What does that mean? It means for those who are struggling, for those who are oppressed by evil forces in the world, for those who are being persecuted because of their faithful perseverance uh, with Jesus, Revelation is a word of comfort. It says God is on his throne, the sovereign God of the universe, the lamb who was slain, has all authority with God the Father to redeem you and to rescue your life. So even if you die for your faith, Revelation says, be comforted. God is on his throne. But Revelation is also a word of affliction for the comfortable. And we saw this time and again in many of the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He speaks to Christians who have compromised, who have, who have become complacent who are lukewarm, who are not effective in any way for the kingdom. And what is Jesus' word to these comfortable Christians? It's a word of affliction. Wake up. Repent. Restore what you have lost. Turn to me. Overcome by persevering in faithfulness until the end. Revelation is a word of comfort for the afflicted, and it's a word of affliction for the comfortable. Christian, are you coming to Revelation 4 and 5 this morning genuinely afflicted? Do you face the ridicule of others and and pressure from others to compromise on your faith in Christ? To give up a little bit of what you hold most dear in order to get along a little bit better in the world? Do you come to Revelation 4 and 5 today genuinely afflicted? If so, worship of the one true God in all of his chaos-ordering power is meant to comfort and to calm your troubled heart. When we sing songs like, Worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty, it ought to comfort our hearts in times of affliction. Because we're remembering that though things seem crazy, the God who brings order out of the chaos of all things is on His throne. It's on his, he's on His throne. 
I'm going to be okay. And if not in this life, I will in the next. My guess is, though, most of us are probably a little bit more like me. We come to Revelation 4 and 5, not so much afflicted, but comfortable. Comfortable in our patterns of worship. Comfortable in our rhythms of Christian life. Comfortable in the things that we do day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Going to church all the time, and yet everything in our life is still a mess, but we just ignore it because I'm going to church. God will fix it eventually, right? Are you comfortable? Have you become complacent? Have you become lukewarm in your faith in Christ? Have you compromised obedience to Jesus for personal gain and personal pleasure? Know this this morning and and allow your conscience to be afflicted this morning if you're comfortable. Worship of the Lamb who was slaughtered and raised to make you a citizen of His kingdom and a servant of God in all of His holiness. This knowledge and this worship should afflict your conscience. It should drive us to repentance. To sing to the Lamb, to sing to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain for my sins and your blood ransomed me so that I could be a part of your kingdom, so that I could serve as a priest to God, so that I could share in your authority on the earth. God, I look at my life and I see how comfortable I've become in the absence of worship in my life. And that's a problem. Revelation is a word of comfort for the afflicted. Friend, if you are afflicted, genuinely afflicted, be comforted by the knowledge that the God who is worthy of all worship is on his throne and he ain't moving. But friend, if you're here this morning and you're comfortable, if you're compromised, if you're complacent, if you become neither hot nor cold but nauseous in the mouth of Jesus because of your inconsistent witness to Christ, be afflicted by this worship. Be convicted by worship because you remember who God is, what he saved you from, and yet perhaps the life you're living now is not consistent with what he's called you to. It is a central image of worship of God in the heavenly throne room that sets the tone, that is the vantage point for the rest of Revelation. John's not going to leave the heavenly throne room in the rest of Revelation. Everything else that he sees is in the context of this throne room, this this. Heavenly amphitheater of praise to God. This is where John will look around and he'll see all that is going to take place as the Lamb opens a scroll. This vision sets the tone. It's the vantage point for the rest of this vision. Friend, is the worship of God that which sets the tone and is your vantage point in life? Is the worship of God, is that the the anchor for your soul? Is that home base for you? Is worship the background of your personal Bible study? Or is it just this internal expectation of duty to prove to God I'm doing what he wants me to do? Or are you reading your Bible at home when when you're praying? Is that because worship is at the center? Because you want to know more of the beauty of God, the holiness of God, the splendor of God. Is worship the foundation of your small group Bible study on Sunday mornings or midweek or in your homes? Are we getting together so that we might worship God better with every part of our lives? Or are we getting together to get together? Is worship found in the halls of our homes? Is it heard in the foyer and the offices of this building? Monday to Saturday and Sunday afternoon? 
Now here I don't mean, when I say is worship the, the vantage point, the home base for the rest of our lives. Here I don't mean just worship in music and in song. But I mean praise of God for who He is and for what He's doing, either in spoken word or written word, or, or, or maybe in, in internal groans inexpressible. Creatures who have come into contact with the glorious God cannot help but praise Him. And they hardly need a cue to do it here in Revelation. Not a one of these creatures. Did you notice? The four around the throne of the 24 elders or the myriads of myriads or every creature. In the, none of them asks, God, is it okay if we worship now? We'd like to offer you a song. Not a one of them. They just do it because it's the right thing to do. They cannot help but praise him. Oh, that this might be so for us that we would hardly need a cue or hardly need permission to praise God. Isn't that silly to think? Worship happens when Pastor Danny is singing. The rest of the time, I don't know what we're doing, but that's when worship happens. That's preposterous. Worship is, is not just in singing songs and playing music. Worship is in our whole life emanating in glorious expression and praise to God. With the knowledge that worship is where this whole life is headed. It's where where everything is going. With the knowledge of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. With the knowledge that this sovereign God is in control of all things. Including our affliction and our comfort. He who is sovereign over everything. Knowing all of this about God is revealed to us in Revelation 4 and 5. What, uh, What more ought we to do together as Christians than respond in worship? What is right to do this morning? Worship. Worship. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to respond in obedience and faithfulness to God's word this morning together. We're going to worship. If you haven't yet already this morning, start. I'm going to pray in a moment. Pastor Danny and the praise team are going to come. They're going to lead us in a song of praising God, of praising the Lamb, of of seeking to to know the empowering of the Holy Spirit and to praise Him for for all of His worthiness. Friends, we have opportunity to worship, not just every Sunday. We have opportunity to worship every day, but we have opportunity to do it all together on Sunday, to hear the voices of other saints, to make this room look and sound a little bit in a limited way, a little bit like that heavenly throne room. Why would we not... Why would we not enjoy that and give ourselves a taste of what we'll know in eternity at least once a week all together? So we're going to do that this morning. And as we worship, here's what I invite you to do. One, sing. Sing. There is nothing more compelling and encouraging to the heart of any pastor or any saint, I should say, than the sound of other saints singing. I don't care if you can't carry a tune in the bucket. Give it a shot. By the way, the people that are singing around you will make up. (laughs) But sing. Sing. If you know this God that Revelation 4 and 5 reveals to us, sits on his throne, sing about him. Lift your voice. Lift your hearts. Friend, if you need to be comforted by the sovereignty of God, ask him to do so as we sing in response to him. If you need to be afflicted because you're living a comfortable, complacent, lukewarm Christian life, ask God as you sing, convict me and lead me toward repentant obedience. Friend, if you are so far from this concept of worship because you don't even know this God, 
Make this time of worship where other saints are singing around you. Make this a time for you to trust this Jesus, to look on the Lamb who was slain, to bring forgiveness for your sins, who was raised from the dead in power and glory to make you right with God. Look on the Lamb and call Him Lord today. I invite you, you, you may not, you may find yourself unable to sing the words, not because you don't want to, but something preventing you. Perhaps there's some, some prayer that you, some, some confession of sin to God that you need to bring. I invite you, move this morning. Get up, out your seats, and come pray here at the steps. There's nothing magical about these steps, but there is something formative about us literally moving in response to God. Getting out of our chairs where, where, where we can hide in our sinfulness, where we can hide in our sins unconfessed. There's something about saying, I need to respond, so I'm going to come up here. I'm going to kneel in front of people who know me and love me, and I'm going to assume that they don't care what it is that's plaguing me, but I know that they care about me and they're going to be praying with me as I pray for God to transform me this morning. Maybe you just need to come here and fall on your face and worship of God. I know Pastor Danny and the team will be up here to pray. You're not worshiping them. So if you fall on your face in front of God up here, don't feel like you're worshiping them. None of us think that. All of us are turning our praise to God. Don't sit in shame and fear and vulnerability thinking like, I can't move in worship because other people might think weird things about me. Friends, God already knows all the stuff that's in your heart. He already knows all the ways you need to respond in worship today. And I might, can I just give us invitation to fight against this morning, to fight against the temptation? We have it in our church. I haven't said this out loud, but we have it in our church. We are constantly tempted not to move in response to God. And I don't know why, but God does. So I'm inviting you this morning, church, move, move, move in worship to God. It's not weird for me. I don't care what you're dealing with. I'm probably walking through stuff too. We're all here to help each other. Why would we not worship with unfettered devotion to God when we have every opportunity? So this morning, friend, move. Move. Maybe you need to kneel at your seat. Maybe you need to kneel up here. Maybe you need to stand with your hands lifted high, looking like you're calling a good field goal. I don't, whatever it is. However you need to worship, move and worship today. Maybe you never sing, brother. Sing this morning. Everything's headed to worship. Worship is the vantage point. It's home base for the Christian. Let's round the field this morning. Let's bring it home. Let's worship well.